you know, when I listen to Ryan Miles describe his childhood in rural Idaho and the religion under which his parents practiced, I'm aware of the power of that immersive experience for him. And perhaps in no other episode do we get a sense of before, during, and after. Ryan reflects on life before the process, a bit of his life in the process, and spends a fair amount of time reflecting on how different things are outside of the process. There's a timeline there that's pretty cool. I hope you enjoy this episode, this vulnerability, this honesty of Ryan Miles. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Drew Horning here. Uh, Ryan Miles is with us. Ryan, welcome. Thank you, Drew. It's great to have you. Ryan is the owner of Peak Imports. Peak Euro, technically. Peak Euro. They are in Bend, Oregon. He's the owner and the CEO, been in business for 15 years. He's been married for 23 years. And he has two children, and he's also a graduate of the Hoffman Process. Ryan, it's great to have you. Welcome. I am very, very grateful to be here. Thank you. I'm excited for this conversation, and I'm aware that, well, let's just say people sign up for the process for a lot of different reasons, but one of them is that things aren't going too well. They want less of something and more of something else. They have certain pain points that drive them to want to take a week off and do some deep dive into their internal world. What were your pain points? That's a great question. That's a huge question. I'll try to summarize. Most recently, the pain points that drove me toward Hoffman, I think there are lots of pain points, but I had really come to notice that I was very alone in my life, that the reason that I was alone is I, I, couldn't, really, I couldn't really work up any empathy for anyone and therefore didn't really have a lot of friends, including in my immediate family, as you said. I'm married, and for 23 years, probably the first 20, pretty clueless as to why it was that, that way, what was really going on. And I just didn't know what was causing all of that. And I think probably through a lot of searching and personal development work, started hearing about Hoffman through... Uh, actually some pretty abnormal avenues through a trade group that I'm a part of. But the empathy empathy part was a big 
challenge. And even in my pre-process paperwork, as I thought about it, that was really the deal. And I, did, I just didn't know why, if that makes sense. You know, why am I alone? Who were you at lacking empathy for? Your kids, your wife? Describe a little bit about that. What I noticed is it was, it was all of those people. What did that look like, I guess? Like a kid would, uh, my son would uh, fall down. Uh, he's an active guy. He's 11 now. But uh, he would fall down and, and get hurt, get a, get a cut. And I would look at him and I would notice he was hurt, you know, a bit. And my wife would come by and look at me and say, pick him up. What, what are you doing just standing there? And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? It would show up in ways like that. I just felt that I genuinely did not care for other people. <laughs> I guess that's a moment of transparency there, Drew, but it, it was the honest truth. Uh, I would see people and I would want to care for them. My wife, um, yeah, that sounds sad, what you're saying. Huh. That would kind of be the end. And so, of course, that led to being alone and to unfulfilled relationships. And, you know, that extended into work as well. Of course it did. But I didn't know why. So going on the journey of finding out why through counseling and other, you know, personal development tools, books and meditation and on down the line. And so... Like, tell me about if it created disconnection in your parenting. I'm imagining that also didn't work well in your married life. No, it wasn't working well at all. But as I've come to realize now, what had, had essentially happened, many times we marry our parents, and my wife had agreed to do just that, uh, to marry the person that her father was to her uh, through me. She just found another one. And I was plenty willing to, to play that role, even though he's a much more empathetic fellow than I was at the time. So we had really just grown apart, uh, been together a long time. We were pretty young when we got married. She was 20, I was 21, you know, just kids starting out and you certainly don't know yourself very well at that point. I didn't, and you know, certainly don't know anybody else <laughs> at that point very well. So away we went on that journey, but it just wasn't working. We lived separate lives uh, under the same roof, just getting through life. Of course, we were growing a business for, for years, so that was a perfect uh, American culture excuse to just be busy and wait for happiness. Happiness is a someday doctrine. So you hear about it. And is it true that you were sharing earlier that you were deciding who was going to go first and, and you, you got the nod and then you said to her, if it works, you can go too. If not, I guess it was worth a try. Definitely. Like I said, the one, you know, the one with the bigger challenges, or I, I guess I would say I hit bottom first, thankfully. It uh, got pretty bad for me in 2019, in the fall of 2019, just in my personal life and my view of myself, all the things I was just describing becoming more magnified to where life was, was just very frustrating. Even though I didn't 
feel like I would ever act on it. I really wish that I could could cease living, as Eckhart Tolle said. I really felt I could no longer live with myself. So really started getting serious about personal development and finding the answer to just happiness. I think just the very basic quest that we all have, just why can't I be happy right now, right here? So I had been doing a lot of that work and fast forward to end of 21, I decided that 22 uh, was going to be a big year of just focusing on more personal development and our family, healing our family. And uh, that's when I learned of a friend who had been through uh, Hoffman. He's a Hoffman graduate and seeking in that way. So when I presented it to my wife, I said, hey, uh, I'm going to go to Hoffman, but I think this is a pattern of mine of being pretty selfish. And I've been doing all this work, (laughs) taking all this time away to heal our family. Would you like to go first? So that's how that came up. You know, she's a pretty wonderful lady. She somehow in a really kind way said, well, you know, I feel that maybe it would be most valuable to all of us if you went ahead and went first and we'll see how that goes. And uh, I'd be happy to go. But in a kind way, she was basically like, look, you're the one that's got the biggest challenges. Why don't you go face it first? So we didn't really had no idea what was going to happen. Just went in with open arms. So those open arms go into the process. Take us there. You you bring your struggles of disconnection, of loneliness, of unhappiness, and the process begins. You've done your paperwork. You're sitting in your seat. It starts. Take us to your process. How was it? What uh, is there a moment in time, even? Yeah. Well, many. So from the first day of the process, I knew that it was going to be a difficult but worthwhile journey. And I knew that I was in the right place. And even more than that, I knew that I was safe. I was very afraid to do the work. As we rolled through the process and got into some of the expression work, especially Uh, I realized that I had a lot of, quite a lot of anger and it was, it was, I would call it a righteous anger. It was okay to have anger, but it was very misplaced. It was placed directly on myself and then on my parents. And I just had never had the tools to realize where, where that should be actually directed, that it was, that it was training, that it was pattern. And as we went through all the different cycles of transformation and awareness, especially, and then going into expression, it just started unfolding, uh, (laughs) peeling like an onion. And so after day two, all of a sudden, I really had a felt sense that the reason I didn't have empathy for others and therefore compassion is is that that was a piece that was missing for myself first and there's an ironic thing about being someone that considers himself quite selfish it's that your self view is so small that all you can see is yourself 
And that's what I started to realize. I had always thought my whole life that I was inherently bad and that goodness had to be earned at the end of day two in the process. That paradigm had completely flipped. And I realized that that was just simply not true in my experience, that uh, I was inherently good. And all of the patterns and and learned behaviors that I had taken on to, to try to make my way in the world, those were the false, false realities that I was living in. So I think as many of us speak about the processes about undoing to come back to home. And as I was reviewing my notes, getting ready for our time together, Drew, that was by the end of day two, I realized that my whole philosophy on love and how we worked had had just been backward my whole life. And you definitely can't give what you don't have. I could not. So there was no way for me to have empathy or compassion for anybody else because I hated myself. And if hate is what I have, then hate is what I have to give. It's all I have to give. That was a big turning point in I'm so very thankful that it happened early on in the process and is still happening. You know, the process was recent for me, not long ago, just a month. I think we're a month. Yeah. Ryan, take us to your childhood. What you've referenced your parents briefly, but what did you come to terms with about your upbringing through the work in the process? Well, I was raised in a conservative evangelical uh, Christian home. We were part of a denomination called Wesleyan. And the way I received that religion was that uh, I was born of sin nature. That was what it meant to be human. I was bad. And that my hope uh, through salvation in Jesus, believing in him dying on the cross for our sins, was, was that I could be made whole uh, through that, through accepting that I was born evil, as everybody is, and that the world is a fallen place, and that through Jesus, there would be hope that uh, at the end of my life, when I died, I would would then go to heaven instead of going to hell. Very common and can be very valuable. I just want to speak from my experience. Uh, This is how I received it. So, yeah, going along, you know, cruising along as a little guy, growing up on a farm in northern Idaho, wanting to be good. I'm the youngest of four boys. I want to do great. I want to make my parents happy, make God happy, not go to hell. And, uh, you know, I just lived under that paradigm all growing up. And even at the process, many would ask, didn't that seem strange to you? <laughs> that you're this bad person to which I realized, no, no, it didn't seem strange. It was all I knew. It was actually just all I knew. If it's all that I know, how can it seem strange? If my parents, uh, they didn't, but if my parents beat me every night, how would I think it's strange? It's all I know. You know, the beauty of belief systems, in my experience, is it can lead back to the truth And in this case, it did, because the way I received this belief system uh, didn't work in my life uh, because I could never earn it, no matter how 
hard I worked or, you know, how many times I re-received Christ into my heart and, and all of the aspects of this specific religion, it just didn't really seem to work. Life was evidence that it wasn't working. My mental state was evidence that it wasn't working. My, my personal life, my spiritual life was a disaster. If I wanted to end my life, I was missing something. So I'm so thankful for that path because it brought me to the place of figuring out what the truth actually is. The pain pushes until a greater vision pulls, someone said once. So that's what it was like growing up. Be good, do good, and someday you'll make it and you'll be safe. Common, I think. I don't think I'm alone. Ryan, what were some things that reflected some of that limited view about being bad and the strict rules around how you had to be in the world? Yeah. So, you know, it showed up in a lot of ways. Uh, one of the things, of course, as we learned through Hoffman is in your young, your young life, kind of pre-12-year-old, where you're really just seeking love and acceptance, very impressionable. That's when it showed up for me. I remember one time specifically, and, and as it related to even parts of the process, uh, it was probably in fifth grade. We, uh, we had a band teacher as a rural school. We always got a new band teacher every year because nobody wanted to teach out there. And this fellow was a wonderful guy. He had this great idea that we were going to have in band one day, uh, juke jive day, he called it. And juke jive day meant you could bring in your favorite tape. You know, this was in the 80s. Bring in your favorite tape and uh, he'd play some of your favorite songs and uh, we would all uh, have a dance at school. You know, this was kind of pre-junior high dance days, but I knew that dancing wasn't allowed because, you know, it led to, I don't know, who knows what it actually was supposed to lead to. It was just a sin. You weren't supposed to dan cause, dance because it led to having sex, I suppose. Anyway, I was a fifth grader and knew I wasn't supposed to dance, but all my friends were there. So when it was time to listen to music and have fun, like kids would, I just couldn't do it. I just froze and just broke down sobbing uh, uncontrollably. Ironically, though, as I said earlier about being thankful for all the struggle, that was probably the first time in my life where somebody showed me unconditional love. So th this was a scene, you know, it was like I was a tall kid and, and uh, stood out in the class and, you know, so here's this giant kid crying. Are all eyes on you as you're crying? Oh, of course, everybody, you know come on, hey, Ryan, come on, join in, you know, literally physically, like trying to pull me out on the dance floor. And I just, again, locked up, I'm bawling, you know, crying begets crying, it gets worse and worse and worse. And eventually, you know, I'm like hyperventilating and this band teacher pulls me outside and it was in a little modular trailer on the back steps we sat down and I think he was pretty confused uh, of somehow he had triggered me in that way. And um, he was just so incredibly kind to show compassion. Thinking back through a lot of work that went on in the process of going back to childhood, uh, that was one of the very, very few times I was shown like 
absolute compassion and just unconditional love from this guy who was actually very unaccepted in our society. So that was one event that definitely stuck with me. Of course, I did muster up uh, dancing later in life when I was heavily intoxicated and even once at my wedding. But yeah, it was verbote, you know, so it wasn't something that, uh, that you could do, which um, some of the beautiful work of the process, just going back to childhood and realizing the value of play. So it was a beautiful journey. And um, I think that uh, even the impact that had on me for many years, I was embarrassed of how big of an impact this this dance day, juke jive day had on me because it wasn't that big of a deal to most other people. But as I'm sharing today, it's just my experience. It's how I experienced it. And uh, it was crushing to me, had a huge impact on my life uh, for a number of years. So it sounds like it had a kind of a double whammy in the sense that it was painful in the moment. And then as you grew, the breakdown became painful and shaming for the huge scene it caused. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's the, that's the power of shame. Sadly, that's how shame works. Shame begets shame. It's a part of the vicious cycle. You're ashamed to be doing something against your parents' will, then you're ashamed for not doing something to be accepted by your friends. You're denying your nature to, you know, I'm denying my nature to just have fun and jump around. My brain laid down the same neural pathways that fun was bad and I was bad because I wanted to have fun and be accepted with this group of other people that were bad, which was everybody else in the world that didn't go to church with me. Because, you know, none of those kids did. So, Ryan, take us to your process. And people know that fun is part of the week. What happened for you when fun started to be integrated into the, uh, and this is in quotes, into the work of the week? What was that like for you? Take us there. Well... Uh, immediately, it was sheer terror, of course, because the 44 years of training leading up to that point was still there. Uh, even though there were new ways of being, uh, being opened up right in front of me. But very shortly, uh, number one, I realized that I wasn't alone. Other people had been traumatized by childhood experiences. I wasn't alone. And most importantly, I wasn't bad. And I was already accepted that it never really was about dancing. It never really was about that. Say more there. It wasn't about dancing? No, of course not. Even back in the, in the trailer in, in fifth grade, it was just about being known, being loved, and joining in, just being a part, right? So the same challenges were there. I was a 44-year-old guy getting ready to walk into the, the circle of death as it felt in my, you know, my mind, my intellect, and my emotional side were freaking out. But my body didn't care 
been waiting too long to just uh, have fun. So it never was about dancing. It was about all those other factors going on. I love that. My body didn't care. My body didn't care about uh, the past. It wanted to both belong. It wanted to express itself. So what happened as you stepped into that circle? You know, what's amazing is the main thing that happened is just acceptance. All of the doing, uh, all the building up of those patterns of fear and shame and guilt and just started to dissolve as, you know, 31 of us there just laughed and cheered each other on and imitated each other's goofy dance moves and yeah, didn't care. For that moment, we all went back to, you know, being nine-year-old kids dancing in a circle and getting in touch with uh, that inner child and bringing the inner child into the the current present moment and just enjoying it. It was really beautiful. Don't totally really remember exactly what happened, but most importantly, it did happen. And we all high-fived and had a great time and was then able to encourage others to take that courageous step forward and be a kid who we're meant to be. And other moments in your week, Ryan, as you as the week wore on past day two? Yeah, there's another time where I truly was able to forgive my parents. That part, I didn't know how that was going to pan out. I think my gut knew or, or spirit that you know, forgiveness is, is mandatory for healing. And at first I felt very frustrated that I had been taught this negative belief system. And of course, there was a lot of misdirected anger there toward, toward my parents themselves. But as I went through the process and I was able to see my parents as unconditioned children longing for the same love and acceptance that I was longing for on the Juke Jive dance day and at Hoffman, I could see that we weren't any different. So I, I just couldn't blame them anymore. And I could actually have compassion and I could actually have empathy for them and with them and in the mind's eye, if you will, you know, come right alongside them and embody that experience as kids. So, uh, learning to forgive my parents, forgiving them there, and then uh, being able to, I recently just came from visiting my parents and uh, just being able to tell them I love them. I was pretty powerful and actually mean it instead of saying it out of duty so that, you know, they didn't feel bad, but just mean it from the bottom of my soul. I love you. Yeah, it's wonderful. Ryan, how do you feel as you, as you talk about forgiving your parents? I feel incredibly happy. Even though there's still pain there, because I haven't forgotten, I just have no animosity toward them. And... That was a gigantic step 
it was so beautiful to just hold them and say, I love you. I love you. Thank you. And that's, that's a pretty huge gift. Pretty huge one. So, Ryan, the, well, one, I'm just grateful for your honesty, for your vulnerability. There's a rawness to it, it sounds like. Is that true? It's definitely true. To take an entire structure, a whole way of being for my whole entire life, and discover that love was waiting there all the time is very powerful. Obviously, even as I speak about it now, yeah, I feel vulnerable and I feel emotional about it. But I think as someone said, tears are just fully expressed emotions. And it's, it's from just pure bliss and happiness now. It's like seeing something that can't be unseen. Now I've seen how powerful love is and that love is a, a birthright for myself and for everybody else. And love is waiting there at home, just, just right inside us, inside me, whenever I'm ready to come home to it. So, Ryan, a, a lot of people might question the relationship between the childhood work that we do in the process, uh, which is certainly part of the process, and life post-process with a job and kids and a marriage and all the stressors that life creates that don't relate to childhood. So how was it for you post-process? This Ryan Miles heads back out into the world. What was it like for you? Thankfully, what it is like is like nothing I've experienced before. The work that I did in the process was the most valuable work of my life. When I say that, it's because this way of being never existed for me. Living authentically out of love with self-compassion, I, I literally thought I had to wait until the end of my life for that to be a reality. You know, as, as we say, it's very likely that the life you built before the process will still be there when you get out. That is true, and that's okay. And that's where the self-compassion piece is so valuable, that uh, I am a human living in a world full of humans, and the thousands and thousands of decisions I made before the process based out of fear and anxiety and guilt and shame and hopelessness uh, still have impact. Thankfully, I wasn't all bad. You know, there's probably some sad, star sad parts in this story, and you know, that's the beauty of the journey. But lots of things were going right. I just couldn't see them. I didn't have the eyes to see them pre-process. Life was a contradiction to the lie that I was living in my, in my thoughts and in my emotions, uh, just all disconnected as a disconnected quadrinity. So post-process, every single part of my life has changed experientially. And what I mean is, of course, I still have a business and a responsibility to my employees 
I still have a responsibility to my community to take care of their needs in that way. So that capacity is still there. But all the pain and the hard work has also allowed me a bit of freedom of time to do this personal work. Spending time with my family and goofing off and camping and dance parties and just got back from a big raft trip. I could not overstate this anymore. It is a life I have never even dreamed of experiencing. And every morning I wake up and I just say, well, I wonder what happens today. We're going to find out how this shows up today. And it does. Uh, When you're looking for it, love is everywhere. I was talking with a customer on our front counter a few days ago and Hoffman came up. Uh, This person does addiction recovery work locally, and she was just amazed. We work in auto repair, so it's not generally a heartfelt industry, stereotypically. So she was just really amazed that that we cared about doing work on on self love and compassion, and that anybody in that industry would care about. what I call real things. I don't know. <laughs> the, the things that actually matter, the things going on inside of me and inside of everybody else. So I don't know where it's going. And I also don't care where it's going because I am happy right now. And, uh, you know, that was the goal was to come home. Ryan, that, that's a, a level of surrender that, uh, I mean, I have to admire, how do you get to that place of waking up in the morning, I wonder what's going to happen today, and letting go of not knowing where it's going? How do you, how do you get, how'd you get there? What's that like to be there? Well, I only have my experience. How I got there is life sucked so bad, the life that I created, that I didn't want to exist in it anymore. And the beauty about realizing in our trade group, there's a saying, good news, it's your fault. And so much of my life, my discomfort, my anxiety, my shame, my guilt, all the stuff that I was carrying was my choice. The only way I was able to get there was through the opportunity to step back like an experience like Hoffman, and say, oh my gosh, I get to choose. Right now, I get to choose. I can be happy right now. There will never be a better time than right now to be happy. I think the gift of all the suffering that I created in my life is what gave me the motivation to move forward. I think we move forward when the fear of the unknown is less than the fear of staying where you are. That's when I moved forward. Like, I don't care what's ahead. I, I, I do not care because I know what it was behind me. And that was hell. Ironically, that was the hell I had created. Uh, I didn't have to wait to go to hell. I made one. So, so then I can unmake it. That's the beautiful work of Hoffman. It's coming home. The answer is within me. I didn't need to go anywhere or do anything. It's it's just I needed the opportunity to come back home and realize I'm okay. Ryan, you 
reference that at the beginning, and I want to circle back because you said, I knew I was safe at Hoffman. Um, and so I guess I just want to ask, how, how did you know that? How did you come to trust uh, that the experience was a safe one for you? I think there's certain people that you know that you can trust. Maybe that's a loaded question, Drew. Number one, I felt safe because you told me I was safe. Number two, I think we're born with a sense of if we're if we're listening, uh, life will tell us a lot of things, and it just felt safe. I, I mean, I had a lot of fear going into it. It's not hard to stereotype that situation. I'm a farm boy from northern Idaho going to a spiritual retreat in San Francisco. There's a lot of a lot of uh, challenges in that one sentence. I think just the energy of of spirit being in that place of love of careful attention to our needs as we were as we were there. I think also it was just so broken that I just felt like I didn't have anything to lose and and maybe I felt that right away because that's what I was looking for was safety. Ryan, what's it like to reflect on well, I guess your your childhood, your life before the process, your life in the process, and then your life outside after the process. What's that like for you here in this moment? It's a it's a complex mechanism. I'm a nerd. I'm a recovering uh, Enneagram one. So, you know, of course, I want to answer that correctly, Drew. What it's like is a new way of being. You know, be, do, have is a good philosophy. And it's the most beautiful thing because sometimes, sometimes I can forget and get busy and pattern returns, of course, daily. And, you know, old ways of being come in and, and self-doubt comes up. But so very quickly, I keep saying coming home, but that's what it feels like. It feels like being on a journey where I never fit in. I was never accepted. Nobody understood. Nobody cared. And by nobody, I, I mean myself as well. All the challenges started at home in me. And I was a child I couldn't choose. You know, in lifetime one, I couldn't choose. I just was accepting and doing what I could to get love. But in lifetime two, as an adult, as um, my adult emotional self, I can choose. So it is like the best thing ever. It is like if we had more people making this choice, the world would be a very wonderful place. And I see that more now. It's like I, I now have the, the eyes to see that in the rest of humanity as well and to draw that out. It's kind of what it's like. Ryan, I'm smiling. I'm grateful for you, for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Drew. I appreciate the chance to share. And that brings the conversation with Ryan to a close. And as it ended, I do what I always do at the end of a recording is I pushed stop recording. And then Ryan started spontaneously reflecting on why he did the interview and how it was such a moving experience for him. And I said, wait, 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 wait. I went back, pushed record, and here's what he had to say. 
yeah, why do it? You know, why do the podcast? Because doing the podcast is loaded with pattern as well. Self-doubt, shame, uh, self-criticism, all of those things came into play. Ego, would I do this so that someone would think it was important? I had to answer a lot of those questions because those are very fear-based answers that first came up. But number one, I decided that the reason I would do it is because it's a part of my healing journey. And even though I care very deeply for others, I do understand that I have to care for myself first. And I knew that it would push me into a place of discomfort, which is where healing happens. Number two, I don't want to waste the pain. The pain of my journey is too good to waste. And we just scratched the surface of it today in this podcast. And I really feel like there are many other people that are having the same experiences that I did. And I had to overcome those fears of patterns of you know, feeling special or wanting to be wanted. And just put that aside and say, hey, this is my journey and trust the, the process of sharing it. So it was valuable work to be able to come on and face the dragons and just move forward in this new way of being. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.